if the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is awesome and powerful, say amen. amen. If you're thankful that he overcame, say amen. amen. If you want to hear about the power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, say amen. amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23 will be our text this morning. However, we will begin reading at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And I do now invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Our text. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. Who fills all in all. Let us pray. God, you are great, greater than we can imagine, great in power, awesome in wonder. And even though your greatness is unsearchable, you have displayed your power in your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, it's our prayer this morning that you might give us a glimpse of the power of Christ, that we might be encouraged, that we might be confronted, that we might find ourselves, by the end of our time in your word, ready and willing to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ maybe more than we ever have been before. Do this by your spirit through the proclamation of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Power is both a great and terrifying reality. Both a great and terrifying reality. Power can be employed to protect but it can also be employed to destroy. Power can be the cause of beauty, 
but it can also be the cause of disaster. Perhaps we might think of the natural power of the ocean. If we were to witness calm seas on a, warms, on a warm summer's night, with the sun setting over Malibu, by the way, that's what I was doing when I decided to move to California, we may be inclined to simply perceive the beauty of the ocean without realizing or remembering that that powerful ocean is the entity that carves the beaches upon which we stand to enjoy that sunset. However, if we were to witness the ocean in a different sense, if we were to witness raging seas on a dark winter's night in the midst of the Pacific Ocean, we may be inclined to perceive the destructive power of that very same ocean. You see, power in one's perspective on power are determining factors in one's belief system and one's worldview. And this aforementioned concept of power hasn't even begun to address the moral component that is often behind the exercise of one's personal power. Power in the hands of an evil, wicked, hateful being is a fearful reality. However, power in the hands of a righteous, holy, loving being, that ought to bring about peace. Of course, this is yet to mention the idea of an absolute power. Creatures and objects of creation have varying degrees of power, yet the scriptures teach us that God, that God alone has and is absolute power. He is the Almighty One. From everlasting to everlasting, He alone is God. And when we begin to grasp that, we sit back in awe of the power and might of our great God. You see, one's concept of God is the ultimate determining factor in their belief system. One's concept of God is the ultimate determining factor in their worldview, which then, of course, is going to impact one's understanding of power. A biblical concept of God, which, by the way, is the only true concept of God, enables one to not just fear God and his power, but to adore God and his power. Furthermore, when one believes that God is just as he revealed himself to be in the scriptures, then, then one is free to adore and live in accordance with the past, present, and future manifestation of God's power in Christ. And so this morning, I want to read what I consider to be perhaps the most biblical, succinct summation of who God is from any uninspired text that I have at least read up until this point. I want to read the first two entries from chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the reason why I want to read this is I trust that it will give us a faithful concept of who God is and provide a framework for us to better consider the conclusion of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. 
So please listen to this description of who God is on the basis of the scriptures. It says, There is but one, only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. He's most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all beings, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. and has most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever he pleases. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Is that your view of our God? What a biblical view of God. What a high view of of God. This is a wonderful understanding of the God of glory, of the God of power, and the God of might, and the one true God whom Paul is addressing in his prayer for the church. Remember back in verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul gives thanks for the church. But then as Paul continues, he's going to make a request to God for the church in verse 17. And what Paul wants is he wants the church to be illuminated or to be enlightened. He wants God to graciously bless them with illumination. Look at verse 17. He's praying to God and he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him such that their eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. Well, what's the purpose of that? He tells us, he says, that you may know. I want God to open your eyes. I want God to enlighten you. I want you to see that you may know three things. 
Number one, the hope to which God has called you. In other words, the certain hope of the gospel. That you may know, number two, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. This is the the present and future blessings of being in Christ. Yes, we can agree with what Paul has already said. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Amen? I've still been chewing on that since we preached through that. Every, Every spiritual blessing. Oh, how glorious. And yet, some of those spiritual blessings are yet to be revealed. That you may know, number three, the great power of God. But not just the great power of God. The great power of God, you have to catch this, toward us who believe. Saints, that's a game changer. The great power of God toward us who believe. Well, what power is that? I'm glad you asked. This is what Paul addresses in our text this morning. Paul spends verses 20 through 23 expounding upon the power that he introduced in verse 19. This brings us to the main idea of today's sermon. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, we see that God the Father has displayed his power in Christ in three ways. These three ways should and must be increasingly life-altering for you, the church. They should. It doesn't make sense if they don't alter our lives. And they must, because this is the way that God works out the power of the gospel in Christ in all who believe in Christ. God the Father's power revealed in the person and work of the Son truly is, saints, God, help us to understand this and grasp this. This is truly a game changer for everyday life. For the way you wake up in the morning, for the way that you talk to your wife, for the way that you disciple your children, for the way that you are in the workplace, for the way that you are in your community, this is a game changer. And by God's grace, you and I must acknowledge the power of God in Christ. But not just acknowledge it, we must meditate upon it, We must pray in light of it. We must live in accordance with it, all while knowing that the immeasurable greatness of God's power that is wrought in Christ is also toward us who believe. The three ways this text teaches us that God's power is on display in Christ serve as our outline. God's powerful resurrection in Christ, God's powerful authority in Christ, And lastly, God's powerful gift in Christ. Let us begin in verse 20. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is God's powerful resurrection in the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that that word translated that or which in some translations, it's reaching back to verse 19, and he's expounding upon the the power of God. In other words, the, the great eternal power of God was historically and triumphantly displayed by raising Christ from the dead. And again, such power is the power that's available to you and I today because this is the power that is toward us who believe. And I think we can have a tendency, saints, 
I think we can have a tendency to, to sometimes so emphasize the death of Christ. Don't misunderstand me here. We want to emphasize the death of Christ. Amen. But we so emphasize the death of Christ that perhaps we minimize or miniaturize the powerful resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. I put on some gospel tunes every once in a while. There is power, power, wonderful. And the, the, the little uh, organ, oh, I love it. I get down. We want to lift it high. The Lord Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, amen? But he didn't stay dead. But he didn't say dead. He was raised. And that's exactly what the early church and the Apostle Paul hits on over and over and over again. So much so that when the Corinthians are starting to question the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, hold up, wait a minute now. You're going to question the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me tell you what that does. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. They're wondering if Christ was really raised, and pretty much what he ends up saying in verse 16 is, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. They're wondering, are, are we going to be raised like Christ was raised? Was Christ really raised? And this is what he says. If Christ, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Whew. And you're still in your sins. I don't want to be in my sins, saints. And I want to be crystal clear and direct and honest because as we say, we love you enough to tell you the truth. Amen? If you're in here proclaiming to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaiming to be a Christian, but you don't believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. You need what Paul would pray for God to open your eyes, for him to enlighten you so you can believe the things of God as recorded in Scripture. Paul says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, why, why have faith? It, it's futile. It's, it's worthless. But then he goes on. He doesn't stop there in verse 20. He says, but in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Christ has been raised, and those who believe in Christ will also be raised. Can I get an amen? amen. Praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you will be raised from the dead. God's power on display in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a preview of that same power that is in work in you and that will be made manifest when he raises you from the dead. This should be and must be life-altering. That's what I said, right? Why? Why should it be life-altering? Simply this, because it's true. It's that simple. God is true. His word is truth. He is the source and standard of all truth. It is true. Now how? Now how is this to be life-altering? And this is the challenge for you and I, saints. The busyness of this world, the 18 social media accounts that you have that you may be checking while I'm preaching to you, the score of the game, whatever it is, so many distractions, but... How are we to understand? We're simply to open up the text of Scripture, and we're not just to read it, 
but we're to slow down and we're to meditate on it. And we're to say, Lord, help me. Show me what I, I don't know. Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law. Let me understand the power that you have worked out in Christ. And as we think upon it and as we dwell upon it, it gets hidden in our hearts such that, you know what comes out of our mouth? The gospel. God's goodness. God's word. It, it just comes out of us. And then you know what happens after that? Joy. Peace. Patience. Love. When you get in that circumstance at work or in your home, you're not as inclined to respond in a fleshly way. But because you've dwelt on the beauty of the power of God and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you realize that temper tantrum from your three-year-old isn't that big a deal. And you deal with it graciously. We have to slow down and chew on these things and meditate on these things such that we might experience that peace that surpasses all understanding. We must ask God to help us believe and experience this power which is ours in Christ Jesus. This brings us to the second display of God's power displayed in Christ. It's God's powerful authority in Christ. God's powerful authority in Christ. Look with me at the second part of verse 20, if you will. He not only raised him, but it says, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. We really have two expressions of authority here. We see that word seated. That's the position of authority that Christ has by God the Father. But then we also see in verse 22, he put all things under him, or God subjected all things to Christ. And this speaks of the predominance or the prevalence of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's deal with those each in their order. First, the position of Christ's authority in the second half of verse 20 and verse 21. It says, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And I want us to see a distinction here. Because remember back in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. But now in verse 20, it says that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Where? in the heavenly places. And so there's a reality that we are in Christ, and so therefore we are in the heavenly places with him. However, every time that it speaks of one sitting at God's right hand, it's not speaking of us who believe. And so there's the distinction. It's Christ alone who is said to be at the right hand of the Father. And so therefore, he is the authoritative one. There's an ontological distinction. Yes, we're in Christ but we are not Christ. Our personhood does not get lost. He is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father in the position of all authority. And yes, he does and will share that authority with his church. We'll see that shortly. But it is him and him alone. And this reminds us of Psalm 110. The New Testament writers use it over and over and over again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the position of authority that Christ has and will forevermore have. And the next verse really gives us more indication of how lofty, how high of a position this is. He's seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above, far above what? All or every rule and authority and power and dominion. And most commentators believe that these terms are speaking to the angelic realm, speaks of various classes and ranks of angelic or demonic beings. But Christ is above them all. What security we have, saints? What do I have to fear? My Lord, my Savior is above all of them. And this is actually a reality, a truth that you need to remind yourselves of. Because what? Later on in chapter 6, verse 12, Paul's going to remind us, hey, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly places. Christ rules over all of them. Christ is a cosmic king, beloved. This is similar to what, the Lord Je- or what Paul says of the Lord Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the preeminent one, or the firstborn of all creation. And then listen to what he says next. For by him all things were created. Not some things. But all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Saints, rest assured, take heart that Christ is in the position of authority over all things. And not just these demonic or angelic beings, but Paul continues and says, and above every name that is named. Paul could have gone on and listed a whole bunch of names, a whole bunch of classes and ranks, but he doesn't. You know what sums it all up? The reality that there is no name, that there is no name in heaven or on earth or underneath the earth that is equated with the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is above every name. No being, no creature, no force, uh, no God with a little g. There's nothing, nothing at all that is above the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to remind ourselves that this is in a context of what? Of polytheism. Uh, Of multiple gods ruling different parts of creation. And Paul steps into Ephesus and he says, no, 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 no. Saints, in the world that you're living in and, and these pagans and them believing all these false gods, know it is Christ and Christ alone who has the position of authority. Reminds us of what Paul says in Philippians 2, does it not? He speaks of Christ's humility going to the cross. And because the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul then says... Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. In other words, in every realm, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the beauty of this, saints. That's a present reality for us. That we understand that, we get that, yet at the same time we await the day where every knee and every tongue will confess the truth that we already know. I always, at this point, have to plead and beg, knowing that there are some in my hearing that have not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For what reason? I know not. There is no good reason. But you're blind, and you need to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thus be saved. Because there is no name, no entity, no force, no nature, no nothing above the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, everything and everyone will be subjected to his lordship. Call now while you have time. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ now while you have time. For his grace is sufficient for the worst of sinners. Well, we hear you, Kenny. Christ is the name above every name. But for how long? For how long? Is tomorrow there going to be a new name that's going to be placed above the Lord Jesus Christ? No, Paul doesn't let us get away with that. He says not only in this age, but also in the age to come. There's no age, no time period where the Lord Jesus Christ won't be in this position, this seat of authority. It's both now and forevermore. In other words, that that seat of authority is taken, and it will never be relinquished. And so we have to ask ourselves, why then? Do we, in our feeble ways, try to position ourselves upon that seat? Why do we, at times, try to exercise lordship over different aspects of our own life? Try to get away with little sins, whether in word or thought or deed? What is the antidote to trying to live your life as if you're the boss? Sometimes we're even honest about it. I do what I want. I want to do it, so I did it. Wasn't thinking about the Lord. Didn't care about what God's word said. This is why it is necessary, saint, for us to meditate upon the word of God. For us to each and every day open our Bibles and acknowledge the Lord as he truly is. You are God, I am not. You have revealed yourself in your word. Teach me that I might live in light of what I read today. This is what we must do. And all the while praying that the Lord would help us that he would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, knowing that he has the authority to do both. Christ alone has this position of authority, both now and forevermore. Perhaps you're inclined to ask the question, well, if that's true, then why the hardship? If that's true, then why the evil that we see? If that's true, then why all the challenges? Saints, take heart. Saints, take heart. We are not yet in the age to come. We are not yet in the age to come. 
The age to come, yes, is already ours, but the age to come has not yet come. And this is the reality of the already not yet paradigm that we so often see in Scripture. We have all things in Christ, and we eagerly await the consummation of all things by Christ. But the reality that Christ is presently positioned in the seat of authority is one of the motivating factors for us to live and pursue righteousness. The fact that he is who he says he is, the fact that he's coming back again to judge the living and the dead is one of the motivating factors for us to live in light of the gospel, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. At the same time, when we don't see righteousness in our land, we don't lose heart. We press on toward the goal. We don't care what the world thinks about us. We pursue righteousness and the power of the Spirit according to God's word, and we let the chips fall where they may. May the Lord help us, as has already been prayed by Pastor Warren, not just to have or believe biblical convictions, but to act in light of those biblical convictions. This is the position of Christ's authority. But let's look at the predominance or the prevalence of Christ's authority. It simply says, he put all things under his feet. And he put all things under his feet. The Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 8, verse 6, to indicate that all things, not some things, are under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ was well aware of this in his earthly ministry. We remember Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. He comes to the disciples, and the first thing that he says is what? A little bit of authority has been given unto me. And so, could you please do these things, um, because I don't have the authority to exercise. No, he says, all authority, all authority is given unto me. And on the basis of that authority, he charges his disciples to go and make disciples, to baptize them, to teach what he taught them. And then he reminds us, oh, by the way, you're not alone that the authoritative presence of Christ is with the saints by the Spirit. The fact that Jesus' authority is supremely pervasive, you know what it ought to do? It ought to make our hearts soar to the heights of heaven. When I dwell upon that, you know how much comfort I have? You know how much freedom I have? That when I'm in the word of God, dwelling on the truth of God's word, filled with the spirit of God, I don't care what any one of you think about me. I'm not fearful of man. But when I stop being in the word, stop praying, stop reminding myself of who I am in Christ, stop reminding myself that he is the ultimate authority by whom and who will judge me, then I can get fearful then I can get concerned about things I see, what people might think of me. Brothers and sisters, he is pervasively authoritative. He not only has the position of authority, but he also has the right to exercise that authority, and he will exercise that authority. And this authority is hope for mankind. 
This is what's crazy. It's unbelievable that when we think about authority, what do we do? We hate it. Have you looked around lately? People, they don't like authority, right? Any position of authority, people are upset about it. I don't have to obey. Yes, I was speeding, but that cop has no right to, blah, 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 whatever it is. But God's authority displayed in Christ is for the good of his people. There's nothing that he has commanded, nothing that he has said, nothing that he has indicated that is for our harm, but all for his glory, which simultaneously means also for your good. The authority of the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately is the only hope for any man, woman, or child. Remember back in the garden, God creates man in his image, and he says, have dominion. Rule over everything that I've created. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Sounds great, right? But just a few chapters later, what happens? Sin enters into the world. And the ground is cursed. And we have this massive problem. Yet even in the curse of the ground and the marring of the image of God and man, God reminds us that he is faithful that there will be this seed born of a woman who will crush that serpent who deceived the woman. And so we might wonder if we just had the first three chapters of Genesis, well, what does this mean for mankind? But Psalm 8 reminds us, Psalm 8 reminds us that God still cares for man. David writes and he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And speaking of mankind, he tells us, Yet, you have created him a little lower than God or the heavenly beings. That God still cares for mankind even after the fall. And as we work our way to the book of Hebrews, we find out the hope for mankind is in Christ because Christ assumed a human nature and he ruled and he reigned and he succeeded where the first Adam failed such that everyone who hopes in Christ will also rule and reign with him. And so when we read here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, that God has put all things under his feet, we realize that's for the good of those who love him. And Revelation chapter 21 indicates, chapter 22 rather, indicates those who are in Christ will do what? Will reign with him. So when you think of the authority of Christ, brothers and sisters, Be humbled and rejoice that Christ exercises his authority over you in such a way that he is glorified, but that you also have the joy of serving Christ and reigning with Christ for all eternity. The authority of Christ is good. Why is this powerful authority in Christ a life-altering reality? You guessed it because it's true. Because it's true. But how? How is God's powerful authority in Christ a life-altering reality? When we understand the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and when we understand that it's for our good and also for his glory, then you know what we do? We really believe what John says. His commands aren't burdensome. We really believe that everything that he communicates to us is for the benefit 
of us and those around us. And so when we get later into Ephesians and we read things like, wives, submit to your husbands, women who love the Lord don't scoff at that reality. They say, yes, Lord. When we get to to the the command for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, when we understand the authority of Christ, you know what we do as husbands? It's my joy and my delight to lay down my life and love my wife. When we're told to walk in wisdom, when we're told to walk in love, when we're told to walk in holiness, when we're told to walk in whatever way we're told to walk in, we receive it with joy, saints. And we say, yes, Lord, help me by your grace and by the power that is at work toward us who believe. This brings us to our final display of God's power in Christ. Look at the last portion of our passage. It says, And he put all things under his feet. Not only that, but and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The reality is that Christ is the authority over everything. But then when we get to this passage, we get a new implication and emphasis. And that emphasis is that Christ is especially the authoritative figure over his church here in the present. We could say it this way, where the head goes, the body goes. What the head says, the body says. Where the head moves, the body moves. If the head is severed from the body, then the body dies. But here's the magnificence of our God. In this case, the head was severed, not from the body, but for the body's sake. And the head was raised, giving life to the body and uniting the body to itself. And this head-body imagery expresses the unique and mysterious reality that we are united to Christ in a vital sense. That we are united to Christ in a vital sense. This passage on God's power displayed in Christ it precedes one of the most famous passages in all of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But this passage that we're going through emphasizes that there is no life in us, that there is no vitality for us apart from God's power displayed in Christ. And so when he's emphasizing God's power, God's power, God's power, then we get to chapter 2, it says, you're dead. That's a huge problem for us. If the power of God isn't emphasized and put on display right before it, you're dead, things are really bad. Dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses. Then we get to the, the but God. And what does it say there? He made us alive with Christ. That's talking about a vital union, that we are with Christ and we are alive with Christ. And it's God's power that does that. And this text explicitly defines the church as the body of Christ, and then it further declares that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all, or who fills all in every way. I can't tell you how many pages on this passage there are in commentaries. Page after page after page after page. It's unbelievable. 
And I'll be honest, I don't think I adequately grasp or understand all of the views. But let me offer one way which we must not interpret this last passage and then offer the general sense of what I believe it means. First is this, when it says the fullness of him who fills all in all, he's qualifying, giving further uh, information on who the church is. What we must not do, how we must not interpret this passage, is that, it's, that it is suggesting that Christ somehow, I'm sorry, that it is suggesting somehow that the church completes Christ. That it's suggesting that the church completes Christ. That is not what's going on. Rather, the truth is that Christ completes the church. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 4. Later on when we get there, we see that the goal for the church is that we would be built up in the likeness of Christ, verse 13 of chapter 4, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of what? Of the fullness of Christ. And so we are trying, and we, by God's grace, through the power of his Spirit, are going to be completed by Christ rather than complete Christ. Well, then, what does it mean? I think the general idea of this verse must not be ripped from its context. That's really important for us to get. So oftentimes people take this verse and they expound upon it, but they forget the context. What's the context? This passage is about God's power in Christ. And one way in which God displays his power in Christ is by giving Christ to the church and thus empowering the church. The church is the fullness of Christ in the sense that it is filled with the power of Christ for what purpose? To accomplish the will of God both in this age and in the age to come. This is all by God's grace and all unto his glory. Why is God's powerful gift in Christ life-altering? Because it's true. How is God's powerful gift in Christ life-altering? Saints, that we would believe this, that we would understand this, that we would hold on to this, God's gift of Christ to the church is an irrevocable gift. So guess what happens when you sin? You don't have to wonder. Wait, wait, does, does God still love me? Wait, am I still in Christ? Wait, do I have everything that I need for life and godliness? If you are in Christ, then it is signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours, babe. I think someone talked about Stevie Wonder. It's a done deal. Saints, believe that. Behold Christ. Lift him high each and every day. Say, you are who you say you are. Get in the scriptures and read and pray and say, Lord, put on display the power of the gospel in me because you said you would. Because you said this is the power that is at work toward us who believe. Lord, help us to have a proper perspective Help us to have a proper perspective on you and therefore on power such that we would see the display of your power worked out in Christ. That he has been powerfully res resurrected. That he has powerful authority. And that he is the powerful gift of the church. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And as we continue on in this book of Ephesians, I pray that each and every one of us would not forget
the power that is at work toward those of us who believe, which enables us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.